Welcome back to the arbitration station. Yeah, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. In Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. Relaciones exteriones equal to. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dalkus Kulboy. And I'm Brian Kotick. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% weak coffee because we're in the US. The US of weak. I miss it. I miss Swedish coffee, actually. Yeah, so do I, and I've only been here like a week. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Danish coffee is equally good. Yeah, it's even better, actually. Where in the world are we in the United States? We are in Adams, Morgan, Washington, District of Columbia, United States of America. Two zero zero (laughs) whatnot. Yeah, we're finally in the same room. Is this the uh, the first time of season three we're in the same room? Yeah, recording a podcast, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, and we're in a basement, so apologies for the uh, the sound quality. Right, or anyone's marching uh, above us. Yeah, it adds color, I think, to the whole experience. <laughs> so what have you been up to, Brian? Well, I this has been a crazy uh, week for me. So the beginning of the week, I took the train, my favorite mode of transportation, took the train to Paris to do Paris Arbitration Week, where, as everyone has heard, we have been media sponsors for the past couple, or we are one of the media sponsors for the conference, and so we were publicizing it for the last couple of episodes, and the conference was really good. I mean, it's the ICC um, European Conference, it's the the kickoff conference, and from last year to this year, I think it was like a 400% increase in the amount of people uh, that came and people were coming from not just London or Paris or train accessible locations, but people were coming from the Nordics and some people from the U S it's becoming a thing. Yes. And the president of the ECJ was the, um, keynote speaker. Oh yeah. This I heard about that. Yes. It's going to happen. Was it, um, one person talking to a room of other people who didn't understand that person or was it uh, a mutual exchange of people from two different words? <laughs> it was one person who knew about our world but who doesn't live in our world anymore telling us how our world is what his world should be. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I see, yeah. And if, if it's one thing we know about arbitration lawyers is that they love to be lectured to. Yeah, especially about how their um, industry is going to die and or change rapidly. <laughs> we, we love that. Uh, but I thought it was brave and I thought it was um, ballsy. And I like when someone gets up on a podium and says something a bit controversial at a conference. So Amen. I was happy about it. He talked about like multilateral courts. He thinks all um, ad, like ad hoc um, investment arbitration should become institutionalized. Um, and this isn't just like unsatral institutionalized, like going to ICSID or going to SCC or something like that. Uh, or the ICC, clearly. There was yeah. some vested interest there. <laughs> uh, but he basically said that, that is where the weak point is um, in investment arbitration. Did he disclose, as people sometimes do in, initially, that this is me in my personal capacity? Or was he there speaking as the president of the ECJ? He was speaking, that's a good point. I mean, he was there as the president of the ECJ. Um, and he didn't say, like, this is me personally, as far as you can recall, at least. No. 
It's but I can't imagine he. Yeah, you're right. But I, I can't imagine he's allowed to say anything else that would be contrary to that. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, it's a it's a policy question, and it sounds like uh, now since I've spent a, a week in New York listening to the EU Commission in the Uncentral Working Group, so which we'll probably get back to, it sounds like he he is very much on board then policy wise with what the other branch of the EU the EU Commission yeah wants to achieve, and it's not like I don't know the nature of a multilateral investment court is going to come on his table in his capacity as judge. So I guess he's free to speak on that sort of big picture thing without raising any doubts. Right. But still, I mean, it's cool. I agree that a, a judge would stand up and make what is essentially, maybe not political, but at least like policy-ish yeah. statements. Absolutely. And he, yeah, he was talking about um, there shouldn't be bilateral treaties anymore it should be multilateral treaties yeah, yeah, yeah so it was just really going down the line and hitting all the points in front of everyone i thought it was quite interesting we have some interesting synergies here in our respective experiences that we haven't synced but but it, yeah. it, it accords well I'm, let me ask you because I, there were a lot of arbitration oyster what, what's your sense from the paris arbitration week if you talk to people afterwards about this like where where is the arbitration world generally when it comes to the multilateral investment court project and let me just put an asterisk on that and the reason i'm asking is that it's a, of course a different room in uncentral where it's mostly states right but we also have a few arbitration insiders who are there in various capacities and it's clear that some have sort of signed on gabriel kaufman kohler is a pretty like a vocal advocate for some sort of reform mm-hmm. and she was seemingly actively involved in the uncentral working group and just like spearheading and she's involved in her academic capacity but also um for the swiss delegation she's like very much invested in reforming the system and then there were others such as most prominently charlie brower judge uh, brower we should say uh, who was there on behalf of asil the american society of international law and made a few really pointed intervention and for those of you who happen to have some time once the audio and the transcripts maybe just audio and not transcripts actually come out in a few weeks time uh, i can recommend the 45 50 minutes of exchanges between brower and some state delegations in like official diplomatic channels about this like whole notion of reforming arbitration, there it was obvious that Brower is not a big fan of this. Right. So it's like we have the Kaufman Kohler end and the Brower end, but I don't really know which is the most representative of where arbitration people generate, or maybe it's somewhere in the middle. I don't know. What's your sense? Yeah. Well, I really want you to get into the details on that, <laughs> on that exchange. Um, but I mean, my sense is, but this is, I think, I think it's a di- it's a different context as well. I mean. Um, I, I don't know how many, how many times or how often GKK is sitting as counsel or Charlie Brown is sitting as counsel. But I don't like, think none of them ha- has any counsel. Exactly. And so it's a bit of a different bag, um, or they have a different dog in the fight because the, the people that I have been talking to, it's just like an immediate write off of like, this is never going to happen. It's completely impractical. And it, even if it is going to happen, it's going to take like 20, 40 years for this to happen. Yeah. So we can just, so we'll be retired. Yeah. So it's like, so it's full not, steam ahead. No yeah, worries. Let's ruin the environment. My yeah. kids don't care. Uh, so that's kind of, that's, but I think that comes from the council side, right? It's just the practical side of, um, okay, well, do I need to figure this out? Do I need to transition my career or can I just continue doing what I'm doing and then just write it off um, wholeheartedly? And that's what I think the general sentiment was. The people sitting around my table at lunch, at least, that's what it was. Yeah, that's so interesting because without going too much into detail on what was agreed and what was not agreed at Uncentral, I think it's fair to say that things are progressing. There are different camps and what happened ultimately was that they now they just talked about the work plan and how they were going to proceed, which of course has implications for what is what is going to come out at the end too. 
but even in this like like meta like the procedural discussion, it was clear that there are different camps of states with the EU Commission being t- together with some others in one group, right. really advocating for some systemic like revolutionary bring down the system and build a new one, and other states who want more like incremental step by step, a few things here and there, maybe change the treaties incrementally, mm-hmm. but I think we can say safely that it's a consensus among states that things have to change. It's right. more a matter of de- a degree or how it's going to change. But it's th- that, like, that, that, that point when we were still talking about, oh, can we keep on doing what we've been doing or should we change? That was like a few years ago. So I, I, I suspect that, at least for like investment treaty arbitration, which is what we're talking about, the states set the rules. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting, to put it diplomatically, that, that the people who work in the system... Because I, I agree that tends to be my view as well when I talk to people, that they think that what's going on at Onsetral and in other fora is just like uh, people who don't know what they're talking about or, right. or, or complaining, whereas we down here in the real world, we do the real work. But at the end of the day, it's the states that set the mandate and they have decided right. to move on. So I think we should just like... Stop trying to kick our heels into the ground. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, how, how is... Before I ask you my question, how is the room set up? Like you're, you're in this room... Is it like a circular table and people are sitting around it and then there's people? Well, it's, I've, I've reported on this podcast from, from Vienna, so up until yeah. now, and that might also change because now they have so much more work, so there might be more sessions now, but uh, established practice has been one week in Vienna and one week, week in New York, mm-hmm. and those rooms are a little bit differently set up. But now in New York, the, the states that are current member states of Ancetral, I don't know the exact number, but it's maybe 50 or 60 or something, mm-hmm. they sit at the very end down on like a floor and then the observing states that are currently not members but still speak and like in practice do exactly the same thing as the member states mm-hmm. they sit a bit higher up and like, like an auditorium yeah exactly and, and then, then we have observers such as myself and judge brower and like 50 other people at the very back when and he stood up and gave his little rant yeah you don't you don't stand up because it's like it's so many people and it's un so it's in six languages so you have to like request the floor from the chair so you sit you're just sitting by a microphone and everything has to go through through uh, interpreters wow so it's gonna be a record but i think i think you're right joel i, th- I think it's um you're in the inside room everyone else is just speculating on the outside so i think if you you hear it from the horse's mouth we need to kind of follow lead so what do you what do you think we should do Start reading up on more. Yeah, I mean, as of like tomorrow, there's no reason to take any active measures, I think. But it's like a, a more of a general pivot in, in mindset. Right, it's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. Because it also has implications for clients. Mm-hmm. You can't say anything that's worth anything to a client right now about what's going to happen. It's like Brexit. It's like, you know, it, it's just a mess. But, you know, it's something is happening. You need to try right. to stay abreast with what's going on so that you can inform the people who pay you. Because things are going to change. And, I mean, for the the more short-term thing is that there's going to be some sort of multilateral body now. It's not going to be a universal thing and it's not going to get buy-in from all the states in the world. But it's going to get probably some pretty significant buy-in. So depending on where an investor is located and 10 years, 15 years from now, uh, there's going to be several different options probably. It's going to be mm-hmm. a traditional ad hoc in some treaties and it's going to be maybe ad hoc with annulment slash appeal uh, separately and maybe also a multilateral investment court depending on the treaty and the nationalities yeah. involved in the dispute so it's going to get super fragmented probably because states cannot agree and what they agree to now is like some sort of multi-level 
yeah. multi-track reform where some states do this and some do that. So we're just going to end up with a very interesting map of various different options depending on the treaties. And that is something I think is crucial to keep in mind that... Well, it's just not arbitration anymore, and that's kind of what we have to really come to terms with, investment arbitration at least. I mean, we could all just pivot to commercial arbitration if you really like arbitration, but if you're, yeah. really, if you're interested in the public international law aspects and policy aspects, and then, I mean, because the president was also talking about in his uh, keynote, is he was saying that there should be an appeals level. Um, and it's like, okay, well, what are we really getting out of arbitration at this point if it's just going to be like an appellate body above a court system i mean we're basically back in court yeah um whether i i mean i think we can you can still do it i mean we can still but if you're interested in purely arbitration you'll have to pivot to commercial but i think we could still argue the same issues that the treaty text and treaty provisions will be altered but you just pivot with that as well yeah but i mean we could still be lawyers in this type of yeah i mean that we can't sit as arbitrators that'll be the point well, or we, people like me could. People like me would benefit greatly from this. Listen, Full Joel. disclosure. <laughs> because I think no matter what's going to happen, most of the, these reforms will based at least like more permanent thinking uh, or thinking about, about permanent institutions is that you're going to move to some sort of tenure thing. Mm-hmm. That there's going to be some sort of roster arrangement. Uh, and even for those who still want to stick with um, like something similar to what we have now, uh, my take of the room this week was that a code of conduct for arbitrators is going to be worked upon. That's going to apply basically, hopefully, to every treaty. Yeah. Because that's something that most states want. And depending on what's in that code of conduct, I think it's going to be more complicated to see the kind of arbitrators we've seen in the past now with the double heading. And so it's going to be more, for better or for worse, I think we'll get a new like uh, professional club of people who are mm-hmm. less paid arbitrators, like academics, people right. who, who, who know the law but don't work in other capacities and only work on, with like with a permanent salary on being like arbitrators slash judges in investment disputes. Right. And that is, the, I think, a, an interesting appeal for people like our listeners, for example, who are... Coming uh, up in the world. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like you've been slightly convinced after this working group. <laughs> well, this is... I was afraid this was going to come up at my dissertation defense because mm-hmm. I haven't really in, engaged with sort of the normative aspect like what what is desirable in terms of the future and the, the reason for that and why I would have responded if that question was put to me at the defense was that it's clear now that the states have agreed yeah the only thing they agree on is that reform is needed then they disagree on the exact scope and nature of the reform but they have all agreed and if states in a treaty based regime agree that things need to be reformed then I mean who am I to say differently. <laughs> no, but I mean, the problem is, is if there is reform and it's, and it's not good enough, yeah. then it will falter and fracture and then there'll be nothing. That is true. But I think that's like, if, if, if I have any one message from, from sitting in the Uncentral Group to the, the arbitration community at large, it is that states, I think, have now figured stuff out. Right. Three, four years ago, it was annoying how little the people who have the most influence over this representing states knew about arbitration. That has been remedied to a pretty large extent now. There, there are a lot of academics involved. There are a lot of practitioners involved. The states have, over time, as they've been discussing this, they've developed a certain skill level. Many yeah. states have had disputes themselves. It is not, I think, the way it is generally perceived uh, among arbitration people. That is just a bunch of diplomats trying to tear stuff down. It's, right. it's actually it's a pretty high-level discussion, and that's why it's so interesting to sit there and listen to. Yeah.
Interesting. Well, someone else who was having some reform in their institution is Alexi Moore at the ICC. Yeah, who we didn't talk to in Sydney, but you now managed to talk to. We pinned him down and <laughs> we asked him to talk to us. I met, I actually, in, with my suitcase and all, walked over to the ICC headquarters on the final day, um, or the, my final day in Paris, but it was still the first day of the arbitration uh, week and sat down with him. So we talked about his passion project, which is transparency. Um, so he talked about that in his opening remarks of the conference about how he wants to have more transparency, and that includes publishing awards and also publishing decisions uh, or re decisions on challenges to arbitrators. Um, so what else do we have on this episode today? We have a dress rehearsal for our little debate that we're having tomorrow, the reason we're in D.C., the Juris Conference, uh, which is, well, it, w it will be yesterday when we publish this episode, exactly. Tuesday, which is good. That means that we can talk today about things we will talk about tomorrow uh, without giving anything away. Exactly. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, should costs follow the event. Joel will take the affirmative of the position. I will take the opposing side of that position. <laughs> Um, and yeah, so we will, maybe you guys can contact us and let us know who you think wins the debate, but just, um, to put it out there, we were given the topic and we had to choose one side or the other. So. Yeah. We were asked to advocate and tomorrow we will be given five to 10 minutes each to give the sort of the basic rundown of our respective arguments, which are contained in longer submissions that we've sent in to the conference organizers and which will then be published in a publication together with the other panels from the conference. And after our presentations tomorrow, uh, uh, a number of much more experienced lawyers will take us apart and also discuss cost in arbitration, I think more widely is my right. impression. Uh, but we, we've read each other's more or less, but we haven't heard each other's arguments in, in detail. So this is a good chance mm -hmm. for us to prep for tomorrow. Yes. It'll While also giving listeners uh, an, uh, an, a nice overview of the, the d discussions on who should pay for what in investment arbitration. Yeah, and we had a pre-conference call about a pre-conference conference call uh, about this topic, and they think that this is going to be the most um, active debate because it's just really on everyone's mind. Yeah, everyone has an opinion. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a horror story. And then for happy fun time, we will be talking about... Over actual beer, because we're in the same room and it's Sunday night. We will even cheers it on the microphone. Yeah. It's the imposter syndrome. Everyone suffers from it. Do you have it? I do. I uh, have it. Emotionally. But intellectually, I know that it's, it's not a thing, so I try to, to contain <laughs> myself, but you can't. <laughs> you can't. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about the symptoms... Uh, maybe some cures, and uh, how it's come about and why it is such a plague for the um, arbitration world. Yeah, the overachievers. Here we go. Okay, we are sitting here with Alexi Moore. I'm sitting in your office here in Paris at the ICC headquarters. Thank you for joining us. Hello. We are here part of the Paris Arbitration Week, and last and yesterday we had um, the third annual ICC conference um, to kick off the week, and you gave the opening speech, right, and introduced uh, President yes. um, of the ECJ Tribunal, and he gave a very interesting talk. How do you think the conference went? Very good. Very interesting, very good, well attended, uh, good debates, and the Paris Arbitration Week is... Uh, 
big big success this year it is growing year after year and it's become one of the landmark events in the arbitration circuit because i was part of the conference last year and this same the same conference last year was about half or a third of the people so yeah, it's it been... is. It is growing year after year. It, it is. Uh, it is uh, a big success. I think a testament uh, to uh, the attractiveness of Paris as a, as an arbitration venue, but also the work that is done by the ICC to promote the event. Is, does the ICC do more than just um, the conference on the first day? No, we had today uh, the uh, International Arbitration and EDR Commission of the ICC, uh, extremely well attended, with uh, uh, close to five hundred delegates. Uh, wow. commission, commission members uh, and uh, so that's for the ICC and there are a number of uh, other events we have an ICC uh, event uh, tomorrow morning for uh, uh, the launch of the uh, report of the commission on emergency arbitration mm-hmm. uh, that would be interesting as well yeah so um, in something that was interesting in President Yusuf's remarks was that he um, thought that, I mean, he kind of addressed some legitimacy concerns of the ICS system, specifically in the ad hoc context, and he thought it should focus on more of the um, institutional, the institutionalization of ISDS. Um, was that something that was new information to you or something that you share his views on? No, I, I uh, it was certainly not news to me. I think this is something you, you, you hear uh, here and there. The fact is that... Uh, uh, investment arbitration is already predominantly, uh, I think, institutional, or if it's not institutional, it is quasi-institutional. If you have an ancestral arbitration administered by the PCA, mm-hmm. uh, you are in a, in, in a quasi-institutional uh, context. Of course, the ICC provides uh, uh, arbitration services, institutional services, which go beyond what the ancestral does in terms of uh, closer scrutiny on the process and mm-hmm. uh, the scrutiny on the walls, of course. Uh, but I think that essentially the trend is already there mm-hmm. uh, to have either institutional investment arbitration uh, uh, and the exit rules or the uh, uh, ICC rules or ad hoc arbitration in the form which is already quasi institutionalized right. uh, with, uh, with uh, 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 cases administered by the PCA. It is, it is quite rare to see pure ad hoc. Right. Uh, with uh, no appointing authority playing any role. Right. This is already quite, quite, quite rare. I've seen a couple of treaties where the ICC is considered appointing authority. Would would the ICC also be able to take on an administrative role, even though it's just considered yes, as an appointing we authority? Have, we have a, uh, we have a rules on the, the ICC acting as appointing authority, mm-hmm. and this is something that we do more and more. Uh, to administer ad hoc arbitrations. That was my next question. I mean, I know it's rare that it doesn't come up that much, but as a pointing authority, are you seeing more and more um, cases where you are? Uh, we, we, we see more and more cases where we act as a pointing authority. I yeah. couldn't give you the exact figures now. No, 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 just that you see more and more. The um, So what I spoke about actually at the conference last year and something that you touched upon and also what the president touched upon was the publication of awards as kind of a transparency critique of the ICS system and the system in general. I know this is something that you have been championing, um, the idea that there should be more um, transparency by means of the publication of awards. Would you mind just kind of walking us through your thoughts on that? Yes, we have, uh, as you know, introduced new uh, new policy uh, on, 
on the publication of awards, which essentially essentially provides that ICC awards made as from the 1st of January of uh, this year mm -hmm. uh, will be uh, systematically published after two years. That means that an award made and notified to the parties in January will be uh, published in January of 2021 unless uh, uh, any of the parties opts out uh, okay. uh, and, uh, and of course uh, any party can decide to uh, to opt out and, and tell us that uh, it does not wish the award to be published uh, we will make sure that the information is given to the parties at the beginning of the arbitration uh, uh, at the end of the arbitration when uh, when the award uh, is, is notified and we'll make sure that that, that there, there is no uh, inadvertent publication of mm -hmm. awards but if no party objects, then the award will be uh, published. We will not publish, of course, awards in cases where there is a confidentiality agreement, either in the contract or in the terms of reference. And we will also exercise caution in, uh, in certain sectors of industry, which okay. are where uh, sensitive information uh, uh, are, are present, such as, for example, gas reopeners. These awards, uh, as a matter of principle, will not be published. But right. apart, from, apart from that, yes, we will publish all awards systematically. We will publish them uh, uh, with the names of the parties, the names of the arbitrators. Uh, uh, they will need, of course, to be anonymized because uh, data protection regulations impose that. Right. Uh, so there will be some level of, of preparation work to, to do that. Uh, but, but yes, so that, that means that uh, hundreds of awards will be, will be published like this. This is not the only transparency, transparency measure that we've taken. We have already decided back in 2016, two, two important measures. The first is to provide uh, reasons for uh, decisions made by the court. Uh, on uh, on challenges essentially, but not only challenges, also on important uh, other important decisions uh, such as uh, consolidations and uh, jurisdictional prima facie decisions. When the court decides prima facie uh, whether the arbitration should proceed as to one or more of the claims or one or more of the parties, mm -hmm. so these decisions are also open uh, for uh, the provision of reasons if one of the parties requests so. And we have were these otherwise written down before they before this initiative to publish them? Were these written before? So sorry? Were these written, for example, if you had a challenge to an arbitrator and you made a decision on that challenge, yeah. would there be a written decision even there though is, it was not if, published? If, if, if one of the parties requests so, there is a written decision to right. find a reason for, for, for okay. the decision. Uh, these decisions are not published so far, right. not because we, right. we, we don't have a, a sufficient basis for, for, for this. We, we may publish them, so it is, it, is, it is a document that is conveyed to the parties only at this juncture. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, it is, it is a written document providing reasons for, for the court's decision. And, and we have um, also, uh, as, as from the beginning of, of uh, 2016, uh, uh, started to publish the composition for ICC tribunals on okay. the website. So there is a page on the website where you can see exactly for each ICC case initiated as from the 1st of January 2016, uh, who are the three arbitrators, wow. how they've been appointed, by whom, and we have now just decided to expand that information by adding the name of counsel to the parties and the sector of industry involved. So kind of like an exit website database. Kind, kind of like an exit website. You're exactly. right. Exactly. Yeah. Have you met a lot of... Um, kickback from the community for these type of initiatives? I can imagine there's an arbitrator, for example, who's very busy and may not want to alert the parties that he or she is so busy. Very little. Okay. Very, very little, I have to say. Uh, I think the measure has been generally welcome. It has been generally welcomed by users. Uh, 
What about um, for the decisions? Is there, I, I assume there will be kind of a middle ground where there can be a redaction process that the parties can say, okay, we are not going to opt out, but we would like to redact something. Correct. Seems like a lot of administration for the yeah, if, yeah, I mean, for, for practical reasons, if, if a party says, I want your vote to be redacted, then we will tell that party that it should agree with the other party on the redaction. And okay. That was it. Uh, so unless the parties agree on the redaction, we'll not publish. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to uh, mediate between the parties as to the level of redactions. So right. if, uh, if one of the parties raises that, which is legitimate, uh, I want uh, the award to be redacted, that's fine. Right. Uh, so please note that either the award won't be published, or if you want it to be published with redactions, you should, you should uh, reach out to the other party and, 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 and agree on the redactions. I gotcha. Where do you see the ICC in the field... In the institutional, like with the with your competing institutions, as far as um, transparency, I come from Sweden, or I came from Sweden, um, and the SEC is also kind of um, taking a lot of initiative to increase the transparency for the institution. Mm -hmm. Do you see other institutions lagging, or do you see them keeping up with you as far as promoting this type of transparency? Well, certainly the ICC is the only uh, institution about exit, of course, but exit is, is, is a different uh, is, is a different scenario. It's the only uh, commercial arbitral institution which which pub that publishes a award like this, which mm -hmm. uh, which has implemented that level of transparency. For example, I know of no other institution. Uh, publishing the composition of its tribunals. Uh, right. Some other institution institutions provide reasons. For challenging, this is something that is more and more uh, now um, accepted, even if the majority of, of institutions still do not do it. Mm -hmm. uh, the, that policy on the publication of awards is, is certainly unique to the ICC. Uh, now, of course, each uh, institution uh, has its own rules, uh, and some institutions have a confidentiality provision in the right. rules, so that if you have that, then you will not, of course, publish awards. Right. Uh, we at the ICC do not have a confidentiality provision in our rules, so that allows us to be more transparent. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I would say the one aspect of ICC arbitration that everyone talks about as far as transparency is concerned is the scrutiny um, part of it because it is um, kind of this unknown thing unless you're part of the court or part of the ICC mm -hmm. you don't really know how it works yeah. um, is there something um, there that the ICC is trying to do or would they be willing to are, are you open to kind of opening that up as well or how do you see that as part of this process no, we, we have already taken measures to make make that uh, that process more uh, more transparent in, in, in two ways uh, first, uh, we have, I think as from uh, 2016 as well, we are now providing information to the parties as to uh, the outcome of uh, the scrutiny process. Okay. So the parties know when the award goes to the court for scrutiny and if the award has not been approved, the parties receive a letter saying that the award was scrutinized at a given session okay. and will be scrutinized again. So they know that there was... Uh, uh, that the court did not approve the award. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did that because we, uh, in the past, have been confronted to the situation in which uh, parties did not know what happened. So a long time was uh, uh, was passing and parties inquired what happened, what ha what's happening with my award. They would call the secretariat and so there right. would be a 
of the record answers so all this was not very transparent so right. now we write to the party all parties in a transparent way and tell them uh, whether the, I mean, the award was approved of course they received the uh, the, uh, the award and they know if it was not approved they know that uh, there will be further scrutiny at uh, uh, at another session uh, of the court we are also uh, inviting uh, users uh, on an individual basis uh, from time to time to attend uh, court sessions as observers. So this podcast could come, for example? Uh-huh. This podcast could come, for example? Well, I'm not <laughs> sure. Uh, we'll send our request. Uh, yeah. So, of course, that's subject to confidentiality, to signing a non-disclosure uh, agreement, but we, we, we try to make uh, uh, important arbitration users more aware of uh, the work that is done by the court in, uh, in scrutiny. Uh, and we have uh, finally uh, uh, imposed to ourselves time limits for, for the scrutiny. So now, okay. now we, uh, we scrutinize awards uh, in no more than six weeks. Normally uh, it takes place in less than that on average, it's, uh, it's uh, four weeks. Uh, and for expedited rules arbitrations, we uh, on average are scrutinizing awards in 10 days. Mm-hmm. If, you, if a party asked for the red line of the scrutiny, of the award, that would never happen. That's, well, that's subject to the confidentiality of the work of the court. Okay. Um, well, I mean, it's, it seems like the ICC is doing great things, and it was well well uh, visualized here at the Paris Arbitration Week. So thank you for enlightening us a bit more on your, on your initiatives. Thank you. Okay, so note to listeners... You will now hear two speeches and then vote amongst yourselves to see who is the most convincing. <laughs> we, we, we begin with Costs Should Follow the Event by Joel Dorcas Kulborg. <laughs> <laughs> so here it goes. I've been tasked with advocating for a cost follow the event kind of approach, although I have opted for the catchier, looser pace. Mm-hmm. You can do that tomorrow oh, as well. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> it's my microphone. Okay, sorry. Perhaps, ironically, what you will hear from me, an academic, is a rather straightforward argument that should be familiar to many of you, whereas my learned uh, opponent and practitioner has a more elaborate scheme cooking <laughs> about the supposed administrative law nature of investment treaty arbitration. My position is backed up by less grand ambitions than this and builds on concerns that are not themselves particularly innovative. What is new, however, is the moment in time that we are currently in because things are moving as treaties are being redrafted and states are reconsidering procedural details. This is an opportunity that should be seized. But in the meantime, we're stuck with an old system which does not contain much guidance for tribunals generally but also specifically when it comes to the allocation of cost. Because the allocation of costs is a famously open-ended sub-issue in a field of international law that is already rather open-ended more generally, in the sense that adjudicators are tasked with applying vague norms and filling them with content. This is, of course, natural, because in a system built largely on thousands of bilateral islands of treaties, with very limited guidance on specific procedural questions such as cost allocation, there is room to interpret. In my paper, 
I argue that the best way to navigate this discretion is with a presumption that the losing party should contribute to the prevailing party's costs. And by costs, I include both rough subcategories of costs associated, one, with presenting your case, and two, with the tribunal institutional fees. There are two main rationales for the loser pays presumption. One, to make the prevailing party whole, i.e. put that party in a position it would have been in had it not been for the other party's conduct. And two, to incentivize what types of claims are brought. First, as for making prevailing parties whole, this applies equally to prevailing claimants and to prevailing respondents, albeit on slightly different rationales. In the case of shifting costs in favor of a prevailing claimant, this accords well with principles of indemnification under international law, ensuring that the claimant is reimbursed also for its costs associated with claims. That is arguably uh, part of the Khorso factory formula for compensation under international law. As established in that seminal case, reparation must, quote, wipe out all the consequences of the illegal act and re-establish the situation which would, in all probability, have existed if that act had not been committed, end quote. It is difficult to square this standard of compensation with a pay-your-own-way cost doctrine, which is the opposite that is being advocated by my opponent. Given that the average cost for an investment arbitration runs in the several millions of dollars, can a successful investor really be deemed to have been put in the same position it would have been but for the host state's unlawful act if that investor is left paying legal bills and arbitrator fees that may total the equivalent of years' worth of profit for a company? In such a scenario, the successful investor claimant is hardly in the position it would have been, quote, if the unlawful act had not been committed, end quote. It may have recouped its losses caused by the act, but at the cost of millions of dollars in order to get there. In the case of shifting costs in favor of a prevailing respondent state, it would be appropriate, but for policy reasons, to ensure that the state is compensated for the cost associated with an unsuccessful claim brought against it. It is often said that states cannot win in investment arbitration, but merely in the best case scenario, they can avoid to lose this is true to the extent that a losing state will still have to pay the often significant costs associated with its defense, also in cases that are found to be unmeritorious. And here I find some support in the cost decision in the Philip Morris versus Australia case, which was uncovered only a few weeks ago by investment arbitration reporter. Parentheses for listeners, good way to get IE reporter into my presentation, I think. <laughs> In its decision to reject jurisdiction over Philip Morris's claims, the tribunal in that case found that the investor had changed its corporate structure to obtain protection under the Hong Kong-Australia bit at a point in time when the dispute was foreseeable for the investor. This, in the view of the tribunal, constituted an abuse of right, which precluded the tribunal from exercising jurisdictions over the claims. Thus, the Philip Morris Tribunal never really engaged with the merits of the investor's claims, as it found that the company was not entitled to the bit protection it attempted to rely upon. And in general media, where this case has often, of course, been lifted up as a boogeyman, uh, illustrating the supposed inherent problems with investment treaty arbitration, the award was hailed as a convincing win for Australia because it was thrown out uh, relatively quickly. 
Nevertheless, it was initially not known what Australia had in fact paid in order to mount its defense. It was speculated in local media that the state paid up to 36 million US dollars for its defense. Although this figure might also have included uh, costs for other related claims. But now, since I reporter has dug up and had the cost award unredacted, we know what Australia paid. It was smaller than initially assumed, although still significant by any measure, because in the unredacted cost award it's made clear that the state claimed about $16 million in fees, and the tribunal found this sum to be reasonable. However, the tribunal, which it should be repeated, had found that Philip Morris attempted to avail itself of the bids protection in a way that was an abuse of process, it adopted a modified looser pace principle and ordered the company to reimburse only 50% of the cost it had found reasonable for the state. And it also, in addition to this, um, ordered the company to pay half of Australia's half share of the cost of the tribunal and of ICSID. Uh, so adding all this together, Australia had to pay about 12 million Australian dollars for its defence. This case, I think, is a strong argument for ensuring that prevailing states should not bear their own costs. Even the hypothetical state that is hit with numerous unmeritorious claims, such as the Philip Morris claim, would end up with added costs in the tens of millions of dollars, costs that it would not have had if the unmeritorious claims had not been brought in the first place. Indeed, this brings me to my second point, because ensuring that respondent states do not have to pay large amounts of money in order to defend against bad claims is often highlighted as a reason to move to a looser pace presumption. And this is my second point, in addition to the indemnification aspect, that is the incentivization of claims, incentivizing of claims. Because the looser pace presumption ensures that states will not have to pay for their own defense in unmeritorious cases. The presumption also, on this note, provides access to justice for claimants, including to small and medium-sized enterprises who are in possession of a legitimate claim but would not necessarily have the means to pursue it. Put simply, looser pays makes it easier to bring good claims and harder to bring bad claims. <laughs> you can't roll your eyes tomorrow, Brian. <laughs> Finally, because I only have a minute left, it seems that there is some state appetite for an updated treaty regime which provides for a looser pace principle because most recent treaties have clearly embraced this. However, there are still discussions pending in Ulcentral and other fora on this and other matters, so we don't yet have an, uh, the arrival of uh, states' updated preferences. So in the meantime, arbitrators ought to exercise their wide discretion in the current regime in a manner that establishes a strong and predictable presumption that the losing party will reimburse the winning party. And here in the paper I discuss a few factors that ought to contribute to better predictability, primarily that arbitrators should give better and more extensive reasons for their cost decisions, because they are typically uh, almost laughable, at least minimal, it's a more diplomatic way of putting it. And also that arbitrators ought to deal with costs proactively during the course of an arbitration rather than simply deciding it in a short decision at the end of the dispute, which might come out of the blue for the parties. With that, I yield the floor to Brian Kotick. All right, I will be discussing the, I will be opposing Joel's cost of the event approach. And what I have entitled my article is that 
ISDS is flying too close to the sun. And although I'm not really advocating a pay-your-own-way approach, I'm actually advocating alternatives to um, the cost-follow-the-event approach in light of the fact that there are ever-increasing costs in investment arbitration. Um, I mean, if you think about the cost-follow-the-event approach, this approach came from the commercial arbitration context. Um, when investment, tre investment treaty arbitration emerged in the 1990s, and tribunals were faced to consider how to allocate costs between the parties at the end of a dispute, they just merely adopted the cost-follow-the-event approach that came from this commercial context. But what they didn't really consider was whether that really fit in the investment arbitration context. So what I argue in this article is that it, this commercial law concept cannot be superimposed into an international investment law context. Um, regardless of the cost allocation approach taken by an arbitral tribunal, ISDS has become way too expensive and the rising costs composed of administrative fees, arbitrator fees, institution fees, and legal fees um, have just proved to be a prohibition or a pre preventing access to justice um, for a small and mid-sized investor. Um, so the problem with this cost follow the event approach, as you've hinted already in your own speech, Joel, um, that there is so much uncertainty um, in this approach, not only on which costs should follow which event, but which is a prevailing party, what deems a party as prevailing, um, etc. Now, in order to really argue this point and to really get to my alternatives, I need to take a step back and talk about ISDS as a regime. And there's been a, um, an interesting, uh, how do I say this, an interesting formulation on what ISDS is. And this comes from Professor Kingsbury at NYU and Professor Schill, a good friend of the podcast, um, that says that ISDS tribunals influence the development body of a global administrative law that guides state behavior through influencing both customary international law and approaches taken in other subfields such as trade law or human rights and through their approaches to balancing different investor and public interest in ways that affect public policy and future context. It's conduct of the states and investors alike. So what I'm going to talk about first is how ISDS can be seen as a global administrative law regime. In doing that, I will compare um, the approaches taken in the administrative law context under domestic administrative law to see if we can use those cost allocation approaches and, and superimpose that into the ISDS regime. The reason being is that there's different interests at state, stake when you have a state as one of the parties, number one, but also when you have a challenge to an administrative decision, judgment, or legislation, that it should the, the investor or the opponent to the regulation, decision, or legislation should not have to bear the burden of that cost, mostly because it has to do with the formulation and development of a generic rule of law within that state. But we'll start with the procedural characteristics of ISDS, because I need you first to buy that there is a global administrative law regime. Um, so if we look at the procedural characteristics of ISDS, um, ISDS was the first um, mechanism that offered individuals to bring claims directly against the state without exhausting local remedies. That's the first characteristic under procedural characteristics. The second one is it allows investors to seek claim for damages, compensatory damages, and it also allows investors to directly seek enforcement of awards. 
Um, so if we look at the first characteristic, as, which is um, it allows individuals to bring claims directly without exhausting local remedies, we know that that's kind of um, a basic concept now, is that there is no requirement to exhaust local remedies in ISDS. Um, the second characteristic is that aside from very few exceptions, private individuals are able to seek damages as a public law remedy for the judicial review of an administrative action of a state. Before, there was no international regime that allowed individuals to seek damages, um, even though WTO and NAFTA limited dispute resolution processes to declarations of illegality and then having some sort of consequential trade sanction. Um, there were some instances in the European Court of Human Rights, but it wasn't until ISDS uh, came about that you could actually seek damages. Um, the third characteristic is the ability for private individuals to enforce eventual arbitral awards. Um, so you have the New York Convention and the, and the ICSID Convention at establishing that investors were finally allowed to overcome restrictions to enforcement and gain access to enforcement against states with coercive force. Now, we looked at the procedural aspects to show that this is a challenge to administrative law um, on a global plane. Now we need to look at the substantive characteristics to see what's actually being challenged and to see if this could actually form part of an administrative law. Um, and you actually also hinted this, Joel, in your um, speech, is that there are these broad formulated standards in the BITs and MITs um, that kind of force ISDS tribunals to become an adjudicative body responsible for monitoring the administrative acts of states on an international level. Um, so it's not only their regulation within the state, but also between states that's regulated through ISDS. So if we look for a very easy example is the FET standard, the Fair and Equitable Treat standard, which is so broad um, and that ISDS tribunals have extracted from this broad standard different requirements um, to be fulfilled under this um, provision. For example, you need to have stability, predictability and consistency in the legal framework. You have to protect an investor's legitimate expectations, requirement of due process, prohibition of denial of justice, transparency, and reasonableness. None of this comes in the text of the treaty, but has been extracted by ISDS tribunals that have become this adjudicative body of administrative law in a domestic state. So if we look at some examples, I'll just give you one for this for the sake of this speech. If you look at Mediclad v. Mexico, Mediclad exerted... Uh, asserted in that case that federal officers uh, officials represented that if it submitted an application for a construction permit, then the municipality would have no basis for rejecting it, and the license would be approved. Easy peasy. However, the permit application was subsequently rejected. So the tribunal ultimately found, quote, that the absence of a clear rule as to the requirement or not of a municipal construction permit, as well as the absence of any established process practice or procedure as to the matter of handling applications for municipal construction permit amounts to a failure of a party to ensure transparency required by NAFTA, and thus it was a violation of the FET. So not only do you have a clear administrative law element here, you have the granting of a license or a permit, um, but you have a challenge to that license, and then you have an ISDS tribunal um, interpreting an FET standard to see if they have complied with their international obligations. Um, so clearly, this is these broad standards are something that show us that ISDS tribunals have a really broad mandate in order to interpret the law, and especially issues of administrative law. So if you agree with me, then we can move on to my next one. If we don't, then let's all have drinks. But let's say you do agree with me, then you 
have a state actor who has this administrative law regime, well, in order to have a, a general principle of good governance and rule of law within the state, you need to make sure that there's an effective access to justice, particularly heightened to ensure that foreign investors have access to vindicate their rights um, to challenge these types of issues or disputes. Um, this access to justice in disputes that affect matters of public interest can be seen as a fundamental freedom embedded in almost all states' constitutions, as well as their obligations under international conventions. But the current regime of ISDS has failed to ensure an access to justice for the vindication of such rights, namely due to the fact that ISDS over time has become prohibitively expensive. See how I kind of came back to my initial point. Um, in ICSID, for example, the claimant can at the very least expect to pay a non-refundable filing fee of $25,000 and absent any agreement with the state, a fee of $3,000 per day for the arbitrator to attend a hearing and or hearings, plus travel, accommodation, and expenses. Additionally, the claimant will have to pay an administrative cost to the center upon the constitution of the tribunal in the amount of $32,000. But that's just to get you started. Um, if we look at an OECD survey from 2012, they found that the average cost of an ISDS dispute is USD $8 million and can exceed up to $30 million in one case, which was the Phil and Borg's case, uh, it was claimed. But, um, yeah, so in the Philip Morris case, you had the $23 million, and this figure only represented Australia's own cost in the arbitration up until the dismissal on jurisdiction. So it wasn't even the final award, and they're up to $23 million. And if you're not Philip Morris and selling cancer sticks to young children, then you can't... Then you can't did I just say something bad there? But then you can't uh, afford this type of justice. Um, it becomes this issue becomes even more grave if you look at the tribunal's discretionary authority in, in allocating these costs. Joel talked about this 50% figure that came up in Phyllis Morris, but there's really no reasoning on why they came to 50%. Uh, why wasn't it 49? Why wasn't it 51? And as counsel trying to advocate or trying to counsel their client on what they should expect to see and factor in in their risk assessment in starting an arbitration, you really cannot say anything. Um, now, there's been several justifications for this cost-follow-the-event method, and that's to indemnify the winning party, discourage frivolous claims, sanction a party for acting in bad faith, and punishing a losing party for bringing an unsuccessful case. Um, but when you look at the average costs above... Oh, 10 minutes. Uh, okay, so in sum, I have <laughs> some reform. <laughs> So here's some alternatives that I just want to throw out to you. First of all, I want to say that third-party funding is a false friend, as we're looking at um, problems with access to justice. Um, claimants are incentivized to increase their amounts in order to attract funders. Third-party funding creates access, to um, creates access to arbitration, but not necessarily access to justice. Um, and there is a complete lack of regulation for third-party funding. However, this is just for the purposes of this article. This is not my personal or firm's position on third-party funding. If we look at protective cost orders, this will be my only one that I'll bring up, but I have other ones. Um, protective cost orders is an English public interest litigation analogy. So what happens in, with protective cost orders is at the beginning of the case, the court determines a cap or a limitation on the amount of costs that will be at stake um, for a public interest litigant. And that will only be usually for a state who will have to pay that. So what that means is you can run up whatever costs you want, 
Um, but we have a cap at £35,000 that you'll have to pay in this arbitration or in this public interest litigation. Why have they done this in the English court system, which has the proverbial loser pays approach, is that they think that there is a fundamental public interest that is at stake here and the court and the state has an interest to ensure that there's a proper adjudication and monitoring of this type of dispute and that, that a public interest litigant should not have to stand for that. This, the Court of Justice of the European Union has put out some propositions um, for potential litigants in this context. Um, and so they give kind of an enumerated list on the type of people that would be that would be availed to this type of protective cost order. So this isn't for everyone. It's public interest litigants who have, um, so you have to analyze what is the public interest at stake and is this the type of person who can't um, afford it themselves. Um, I can say just list. I think there could be as an alternative a state-funded legal aid mechanism for people who can't afford access to just or who have been prevented from bringing claims. And states can afford a new cost regime as well. Um, and if they can't, then they can, um, there are, especially if you look at, um, is it the WCO? No, CAS. They have, um, they have a system uh, for, you know, having pro bono counsel uh, for uh, people who can't afford to go to it. So in sum. At 12 minutes. At 12 minutes. Well, it was triple what I said I was going to talk about. It's, um, there is a global administrative law, law regime. The ICS is a global administrative law regime. As such, there's a heightened interest for states to ensure access to justice because it has to do with the domestic regulation and good governance, and therefore a loser-pays approach is way too expensive. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> Time for happy fun time. <laughs> Break it open, Joel. Did you? So this beer is a Port City Brewing Company um, IPA. Did you look at how much alcohol is in here, Joel? No. How much is it? Six point three percent. We have a speaker's dinner tonight. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. For nice costs. to see you. For costs. But for imposter syndrome, that we both suffer from. Not bad. What is imposter syndrome to you? It is the feeling that you've, uh, unlike all the people surrounding you, have no idea what you're doing and you're just faking it and trying to avoid being detected and being called out on your lack of uh, knowledge and skills, whereas everyone else feel like they have their shit together. They know what they're doing. Yeah. And but they don't. That's the key. They don't. Nobody does. <laughs> but... I guess that's the fallback position, but that'll be the cure when we talk about the cure. But the problem is that we all think this, and we all think that the person above us knows so much more. Yeah. And they, they're, they're the last line of defense. And, but I don't think you'll ever have this feeling, but maybe you have had this feeling, to be the last line of defense on something, where you have made an executive decision or an analysis on something and have sent it out. Maybe an IA reporter. Have you felt like you've sent something out being like, what yeah, from time to wrong? time, uh, but that, even in that scenario, there's, there's an editor, there's, right. there's someone else who, who looks at it. Double check. No, but in, in, in teaching, you sometimes have to make executive decisions, like grading, like determining how good is this paper really. Mm -hmm. But it's never, you know, it's not like it's a hundred million dollar thing no. on the line. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's important for the individual student, of course, but it's, we only have a few yeah. grades. It's not, it's not that big of an executive decision and... 
it's nothing like working for a law firm or being an arbitrator, obviously. I, I remember, you know, when you become more senior, that's when you get more responsibilities and you have less checks on your work. Mm. That's when you really feel like, wh- I, how am I being allowed to do this? Um, you feel, I mean, I, I remember drafting my first thing that wasn't really checked by someone when it went out. And I, I mean, I checked it a hundred million times because you just like, you're like, this isn't, this can't be right. This can't go out. You know, you just, this isn't it. They're going to attack me for this, you know? And then. I mean, that paranoia is what drives us to be better lawyers, but... That um, is true. It is a good thing. And the, there are, it seems, people out there who don't suffer from this. And those people are generally like the leaders of the field. Right. The old men, typically, who are like, wait, I got this. No worries. I, right. I, I can wing this because I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for 40 years. That's not necessarily a good thing. No. Not, not as you're like progressing in your career. Well, that's what experience gives you, Right is you've seen a lot of things. That doesn't necessarily mean you know everything as far as substantive, but any sort of like procedural thing you've probably seen before, seen some permutation before, so you know how to react. Yeah, and you, you survived the other time, so you're going to survive right. again. Like, you know it's not the end of the world because you've already been through it once. Right. Well, that's another good thing to think about is that, you know, there, there are ways to correct a mistake in an arbitration. Uh, if you've miscalculated, brought up a different interest rate for example in your memorial well you can change that in the reply you know just make sure that's according to the rules yeah um but you're allowed to do that i mean you can bring objections later on if you need to like there's there there is a backstop and i think with experience you know that there is a backstop but when you're coming from like straight out of law school for example you think you can't file a minute past the deadline right right your teacher's gonna slap you there's a case that i don't mention in in my intervention tomorrow and and earlier on the podcast but i mentioned in the paper a a tribunal a very distinguished tribunal in uh like 12 13 years ago in one of the rare cases where there is an investment treaty that actually provides for a cost rule and says that each party should pay their own way Mm -hmm. which the arbitrators initially didn't read Oh. And they just assumed uh, a more cost follow the end kind of thing. So in the first award, they basically made a cost award contrary to the wording of the BIT. Mm-hmm. Because they just assumed, I guess, we don't know why, but they obviously made a mistake. And then they had to, uh, subsequently, it was discovered, I think also by a reporter actually, that there's, it's a subsequent like uh, revision, right. or I can't remember which rules were applicable, but they had to like... Correct, correct the yeah. initial award because it was just it was playing wrong basically right and they they're three senior arbitrators <laughs> no I mean even yeah even if you're the decision maker you can make and I, I, they must feel that too you know when you're when you sit as arbitrator for the first time and you think why am I entitled to decide on this yeah I think that's why in in investment arbitration specifically and in larger commercial arbitrations ad hoc arbitrations aren't that common like pure ad hoc mm-hmm. because also even arbitrators need to feel like there's some sort of checks, a second mechanism. This will be submitted to a secretariat. Right. Another set of eyes. Yeah, exactly. It's going to read this through. So I'm fine, worst case scenario. It's not just me. Do you think, as an academic, that you have the imposter syndrome when you try to, ta- when you try to move the needle forward in academia on arbitration? What I mean by that is... You know, you hear a lot of these like thought leaders in arbitration. For example, Stefan Schill talking about ISDS as a global administrative law machine. That's taking a position that has not been discussed before, and you kind of have to stand by it. Do you think that there's kind of like I don't have, I don't have, I'm not allowed to say those type of things yet. all the time? Yes, yeah, absolutely. But I, but that is, I am not Stefan Schill. He's twice as smart as I am, and he has way more experience. Imposter syndrome talking. <laughs> no, that's just the facts. 
<laughs> that, that's not a syndrome. That's just because I'm, I'm young and inexperienced. Right. And that is something that I'm very much aware of as a scholar, especially one who hasn't practiced that much. Mm-hmm. That there are limits to what I can express myself on with any kind of authority because I haven't worked that much in the field. And all, all things aside, and of course, sort of almost contrary to what we've been saying so far, people who have worked are generally much better at this because it's it's a game where you just you uh, accrue experience over time and you get better it's not like being a, a ballerina or a hockey player it's like the, right. the more you do it the longer you stay in the game the better you are and that has to be recognized so it's natural that a 26 year old really f- like objectively feels that I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm talking about compared to my senior for a good reason right but it doesn't mean you should be scared no uh, you're in your position because you have the merit to be there and you can always ask questions and say, you know, but you were, you were competent people, like on a, on a general level that we, you know, we understand logic and we understand things yeah. that don't make sense. Generally competent. That's Genu- my gravestone. <laughs> Here lies someone who's generally competent. It was okay. Um, but they, Three out of five. Three, <laughs> 2.5 out of five. Uh, I... Yeah, but I, f- I mean, I, I feel it at every stage. It's like a growing pain, I feel like. And, and it's, but, but don't you think it's particularly special to arbitration or law? High achievers. Is that, that's what it is. I think so. Because we're dealing with so much risk, and we're used to being in an environment with, with people who really do their job well. Which also actually lends support to the fact that the smartest people have the biggest, sur- suffer the most from imposter syndrome. <clears throat> Right, and they also now painting with the broadest brush that we have available. It seems to me that it's more a thing among women, at, mm-hmm. at least historically, but still also maybe in our generation. Those of us who have a different kind of, of privilege, I think, suffer from this less because we are used to things working out anyway. Right. For better force. We talked about this because we had dinner yesterday with a mutual friend of ours who works here in D.C. who is like significantly more competent than we are. Way beyond generally competent. Yeah. But still suffers from the imposter syndrome and it's like really overdoing things in order to be 105% convinced. And she said as a female, it's really important that she is 105% convinced because if she as a female falters, that's going to just ruin it. You know, it's like waiting to fail. And then, and that's what you think of as a senior, that's, I mean, not, not saying for myself, but like senior people look at junior people waiting for them to fail because they just don't know enough. Yeah. And so as a junior, you know that they're thinking that, and then you overcompensate for that. Um, but I, I can imagine on, on a gender level, it's it's quite hard. I think it is different, and and I see it uh, teaching as well. That mm-hmm. as a general rule, female students tend to be better than male students. Yeah, and they also tend to be less aware of that fact or using that fact less. The the, the bullshitter is typically a man, typically. Uh, yeah, and but that's. But it takes it takes a little bit of blind confidence to move up in the world. Yeah. It and I've I've like known that when I've seen people advance and I'm like, how are they advancing? They're dumb. But it's because <laughs> they like you know they're able to like move and shake and they don't have the you know the um the self reflection. Yes, yeah. the self awareness to be like I actually don't know what I'm talking about. I should shut up. Yeah. But you know the person who knows the mo- knows the most says the least, and unfortunately that like paralysis that really smart people have as far as promoting themselves, uh, selling themselves, uh, you know, 
saying what their opinion is um, really prevents them from advancing to the places that they should in this yeah, field. Exactly, because it, it is unfortunately a utopia that my work will speak for itself. Right. Usually it does, and it should do, but it's not necessarily so. You have to also complement that with being an active self-promoter. Yeah, I mean, not in a field where your business is confidential. Your work will not speak for itself because it's not speaking. It's, it's behind closed doors. <laughs> yeah. It's silent. Unless so you, you have a good superior yeah. who works hard to elevate you. So how should we fix this? Be nice to ourselves. Right. But there's got to, there has to be some affirmations that you, like, you know, oh, that sounds so hippie, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, <laughs> I'm surprised. I'm just... <laughs> hippie Brian Connick. I've never uh, met him before. Uh, the ac- acupuncture guy <laughs> who reads horoscopes and... <laughs> Monthly ones, astrologyzone.com. But besides the point, um, the, yeah, I mean, you have to really tell yourself, like, look, everybody around me doesn't really know what they're doing. Yeah, I think this is similar to so many other things that we've talked about, that just talking about it helps. Yeah. Letting the world know, especially younger people, especially people who are unnecessarily insecure, we all have this. We all doubt ourselves all the time. It's just, yeah. it's just part of learning. Yeah. You shouldn't uh, let it keep you down. The first, or one of the first couple of hearings I went to, I saw people who I had known of their name in arbitration, and then I saw them actually perform at a hearing, and I was like, oh, anyone could do this. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have those moments where you check yourself, and you're like, okay, you know what? Like, this person has gotten to this place with maybe not all of the tools in the toolbox. I can compensate for my weaknesses and move forward, no matter what people say. Yeah. And that's another thing, is that we don't get any affirmations in this job. Like, you know, we don't get a good job. We, a good, getting a good job means more work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the, the nicest. Absence of criticism and more work. Means those are great the, job, yeah, keep exactly. it up. And so when you, when you don't have that, then you're just like, I'm really functioning in a vacuum. Yeah, and I think that might be as, as you and I and other people grow more senior, that's also a good thing to keep in mind. It doesn't hurt to dole out some some nice words every now and then when people have actually yeah. performed well. And put an exclamation point at the end of your email. like, And give feedback. Like, this type of stuff, so we're not... that. I, you know what? I think that's also part of it, is that we don't get any feedback. And it's not expected to give feedback. We don't have time to give feedback. And when you don't have feedback, you don't know where you stand. Yeah. And yeah. that makes you crazy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it really does. That drove me crazy with the dissertation, because that is really right. like a, an isolated ramped up version of this when you're working on one thing and other people read it from time to time along the way but you never really get any concrete feedback so right. the, the defense was just like hallelujah because I had a, an opponent who had read it and we could really talk <laughs> about it and get, get some input for the first time and it's like five years later can only imagine working for a firm when you have like because what if you just took a, a wrong right turn at like you know the a very initial part of your analysis and then the rest is just yikes yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't, probably. It's, it's over. <laughs> but did you, th- I mean, were you worried about that? Yeah. Yeah. I was. But at that point, you have to own it. It's, it's rare that you have these, like, binary right and wrong situations. You have, yeah. you have better, worse options. Mm-hmm. Especially if you're in practice and you're sort of tied down by instructions or applicable law or whatever. You, you can't, you have to work with what you get. And it might be bad, but it's not, I mean, you have to do it anyway. Right. I know. Beer helps. <laughs> Numb the, the symptoms. Uh, yeah, the Homer Simpson quote. Yeah, right? exactly. like, alcohol is the cause of and the solution to every problem in the world. <laughs> <laughs> we do not advocate drinking and driving. 
Or any kind of drinking. Or any kind of drinking. Well, um, it's nice to finally have you in the room. Same here. Will we record another one? No, we won't. In the same room, no. We'll have no. a few more episodes this season, none of which will be recorded uh, jointly in the same room, at least. No. But we will figure that out. Uh, this is episode 16? 15. Let's make 17, maybe. Okay. Maybe 18, if we have the energy. Yes. And uh, then we'll take a break and figure things out. But in the meantime, thank you, Luke Peterson, our reporter, sponsor and supporter of this season. Yes. Thank you, Jan Kunster, who works way more than he should. <laughs> and Dmitry Mednikov, who does our research. Yes, thank you. And follow us on Twitter at the Arb Station and email us who you think won the debate. I was cut off, okay? I needed more time. <laughs> uh, at the arbitration station at gmail.com. Cheers. Cheers.